Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing our time together in the Sermon on the Mount. I, I'm having a lot of fun with this. I hope you are too. <laughs> Maybe not, but, but we're, we're, uh, we're in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 26 this morning. Last week, if you were with us, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are some on the table back there. Um, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's our gift to you. Go ahead and take that, and you can, you can have that. Take it with you. Don't hesitate to. Even if you just need a new copy of God's Word, go ahead and, and take that. So if you're in your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to explore Jesus' statements here. But if you've been with us, you know that uh, we've sort of been plowing through the Sermon on the Mount. Sort of this is our 11th week together. Um, and we've been thinking about what it means in particular to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. What does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom? Because that's kind of what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Jesus wants to paint this picture for what kingdom citizens look like. And, and what they do, and, and who, more importantly, who they are. So God is setting apart a people for himself to display to the world. He wants to show the world what the kingdom of heaven is like. What does the kingdom of heaven look like? So Jesus is setting apart a people. Uh, these people are new creations through the person and work of Jesus Christ. What has he done for us? Um, he came to earth to die, to restore right relationship with God, and he's made us new in order for that to happen. But we're still living in this world, right? We're still living in this world where we inhabit sinful flesh. Um, the world is, is sinful. That hasn't quite been made new, so we're new creations living sort of in this old type of setting. So we run into this issue a lot when we think and we look at things and what Jesus begins to outline for us here as we look at the, these six things, we're going to look at six things together over the course of the next six weeks in the fifth chapter of Matthew. When he starts to outline these things, we sort of run into these issues. This is what Jesus' disciples were running into. They were seeing things and they were seeing people who looked externally to be doing well. They looked like they were doing good externally. But however, internally, there was not a lot of good that was going on. And this is what we highlighted last week. We just sort of looked at these six things, broke them down, talked about maybe what made them similar, right? We talked about anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation and love for enemies. And in verse 48, the last verse in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this shocking statement. He makes this shocking statement to his followers and says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the heart behind this statement is that they must be whole. They must be complete people. Meaning that what goes on externally and what goes on internally must match. These two things must operate together. They must be together. We as people must be whole. We must be complete. Charles Spurgeon, he said this, Morality may keep you out of jail, but it is the blood of Jesus that keeps you out of hell. So when we look then at the external, when Jesus' disciples would have looked at the Pharisees and the scribes and the, the people who were considered to be righteous in their, in their context, they would have looked at these people and they thought to themselves, these people are, they've got it all together. But what Jesus is saying is the internal that, that's going on inside of them. And remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 27 says that, that, that these scribes and Pharisees are whitewashed tombs. What's going on inside of them is not matching, is not commensurate, it does not line up with what they're doing externally. 
external morality is only part of the picture. It must flow from inside. It must flow from newness. So Jesus' life and ministry is creating newness. It is making people new here on earth. And then what looks like, what, what, what is the result is a, a, a greater righteousness even than those who are uh, the most righteous in our society. Look at verse 20 in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So when Jesus, again in verse 48, when he tells his disciples that they must be perfect, he knows their tendency is going to be to get caught up in sort of this performance-based religion. What does this performance-based religion look like? And that's our tendency also. Our tendency is to move to the performance-based and not the internal transformation that Jesus is bringing about through his life and ministry. So let's look at this text together this morning. Let's, let's consider these, uh, these six verses together. Verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5, that's where we'll start. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the garden, you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So let's think through what Jesus says here. Let's think about this statement in particular as he talks about anger. He talks about um, 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 insults and external uh, sort of judgment based on, on what is happening internally. So what does Jesus say to his disciples? What does he say they've heard? Remember last week, Jesus speaks from his own authority here, right? Jesus speaks in a way that makes him the authority, He's not just regurgitating material like the religious leaders and the teachers of the day would have been doing. They were regurgitating what they had heard, and they were interpreting in one particular way. But Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is actually speak from my own authority as, the, as God, as the one who has been sent here by God to, to bring about these things. Jesus gives his followers no new commandment here, right? He says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But what he's doing is he's expanding upon it. He's, he's contrasting then the one who relaxes the commands, right? In verse 19, if you go up the page a little bit, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches the others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He's contrasting the ones who relax the commands by making it external only and by making it more holistic, by turning it into something that is more complete. So he's amplifying this. Jesus doesn't relax. He solidifies the claim by moving it from outside to inside, into the heart. By moving into the center of the command from actions and attitudes and intentions that flow into actions. So this teaching and the next section that we'll look at next week is primarily concerning adultery, right? These come from the Ten Commandments. They're directly from the Ten Commandments. So um, what we see here is that the disciples will be very familiar with these words. When Jesus says this, he's like, you've heard it said by those of old, or to those of old, you shall not murder. His disciples will be like, yeah, we've heard that. 
That's what he says. Which is like, what is the result then of murder, right? You will be liable to judgment. So judgment, both here on earth and before God. Now, now murder is one of the Ten Commandments because, because it's an assault against the image of God. It's an assault against God. Now, God tells uh, Noah in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, if you look there, it should be on the screen behind me, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So we get this, right? Murder is not something that, that in our society is something that it's just simply not okay. Like we understand that even our world in its messed up sort of backwards ethic, the way we think about our, the world and the world says it is, it is wrong to take someone's life. Killing people is a problem. And the world may be inconsistent in almost every other area that we're going to look at in the rest of these six things. The world is inconsistent in each of these and its sexual ethic and the way that it handles marriage and the way that it handles it, faithfulness to commitments. But some, something buried inside of us, at least at this point in, in culture, tells us that murder is wrong. Taking someone's life is, 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 is wrong. Life is sacred. Don't take it from someone. Even our, our culture gets this. Unfortunately, though, I think that this gets glorified a bit in our society. Murder as a whole, I, not, not in such a way that we, like, we, we are excited when someone gets murdered, but, but in, the, in the sort of way that like, pop culture sort of rallies around the idea of murder. Right? It's, it is, uh, you can't have 20 seasons of law and order without people getting killed. Right? And so we see this clearly in our, in our, uh, in our, um, in our society. And what we can see then Absolutely, is Jesus here fulfilling or speaking to the claim in verse 17 that he hasn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but he's come to, to fulfill them because he goes straight to the heart of the, the law and pl- plucks this out, the sixth commandment from the ten, you shall not murder. What he's about to give, what he's about to give now is the disciples a new way to think about this. A new way to think about it. So what does Jesus say? though? So you've heard it said to those of old, right? By someone previously, by your scribes, by your Pharisees, by the rabbis. You've heard it said, but now he flips it and he says, verse 22, but I say to you, but I say, so what does Jesus say to them? Three statements contained in verse 22 here. Three statements that he says, and I think they're all trying to communicate the same thing. Jesus is communicating the same thing by saying these three things. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother uh, will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What you allow to go on inside your heart, Jesus says, is equal to murder and its assault against the image of God in a person. And so we look at this and we say, are you, are you kidding, Jesus? Again, I don't think that we think that this is as shocking as it actually is. Are you kidding, Jesus? The way the, the, even the thoughts that I have and, and what goes on inside of me against another is, is tantamount or is similar to murder? Listen to what John Stott writes. Now these things, angry thoughts and insulting words, may, may never lead to the ultimate act of murder. Yet they are tantamount to murder in God's sight. Anger and insult are ugly symptoms of a desire to get rid of somebody who stands in our way. Such an evil wish is a breach of the sixth commandments. 
So as we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount and seeing what citizens of the kingdom of heaven look like, citizens of the kingdom of heaven recognize God's image in all of humanity. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven recognize God's image in all of humanity. So think about anger, because this is where Jesus starts, right? In verse 22, think about anger. How can we define anger? How can we define anger? And we can, there's a whole host of ways that I think we can think about this. But I think we know that we feel it, right? It brings us, it takes us to action in, in, some, in some instances. It might get us to that point. But what, what is it? I think this is a helpful definition. This is from David Pallison's book, Good and Angry. And I think that this is a helpful way, and I think it actually helps us to break down and understand the way in which Jesus is thinking. And, and Pallison uses this actually to, in, in his build-up to his definition. He says this, Anger is active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. Anger is, act, or, uh, is active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. So when we, when we, as people, as individuals, perceive that something is wrong in our world, when we perceive that something's not going the way that we want it to, when we perceive that it brings about a feeling of discomfort or displeasure, then we're, we're driven to, to some kind of action. Now, Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount says that the measuring stick for this, the measuring stick that, that everyone has used so far of murder simply doesn't go deep enough. It simply doesn't go deep enough. The act that brings about judgment, even judgment of hell, is an internalized anger or insults. It's that simple. Now, okay, so examples, right? Let's think of it. I think the, the obvious example for me is traffic. There's not a lot of that in Jamestown. Maybe, maybe, but like if you've ever lived in a major metropolitan area, traffic is like, like go, makes me go insane. So it's, it's, just a, it's just a thing. So um, we live, me and my family, we live in a downtown building. We live in an apartment and, um, and, and we, there's an alleyway and that's where we park. And, and sometimes that, that alleyway is blocked. So this is as close probably to road rage as I get. But sometimes the alley is blocked just by various business activity during the week and stuff like that. And then I come down and I got to go somewhere and, and, and I have to ask people to move and, and it becomes an ordeal sometimes. So I get angry in that instance because I'm prevented from being or being able to go where I want to go when I want to go there, right? I'm opposed, I personally am opposed to a reality that sometimes I can't get to the place that I want to go when I want to go. So, other examples. Think about, think about parenting, if you're a parent. Think about parenting. It's time to go to church this morning. You get the kids, tell the kids, you look at your kids and say, go get your shoes on, go get in the car, right? Boom, done. You got a few things to wrap up. You're going to wrap up these things, and then you're going to head out to the car, and you're going to go to church. You walk out to the car, the kids aren't in the car. Where are the kids? Come on. Come on, guys. They're in the house, no shoes on, reading a book, playing with toys, doing whatever. And so you get angry. You're opposed to a reality that suggests that there are things that fall outside of your control, mainly the consistent obedience of your children. Or maybe you're going to go to work tomorrow and you're going to show up and your computer's not working. Your computer's not working. Many of us work on our computers. It's not working. You've got a big presentation this week and you've got a million other things to do. You call IT and they come up and they work on it and they, they tell you, hey, everything's fixed. You sit down and work and see that the problem is still there. 
Um, so you get angry. Why? Because you're opposed to a reality where working conditions don't meet your specifications. And, and no, note that anger in each of these systems, in these, each of these situations might be or may not be directed at a human being. Note that each of these, you might feel a little bit of frustration, but you might say, okay, they, this is okay, we're going we're gonna to plow, we're going to work through this. But Jesus knew when he says this, right, when he says, but I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. When Jesus says that, when he makes that statement, he knows that the temptation is to move this into a, a, a personal way, right? Whoever is angry with his brother, whoever insults his brother, and whoever says you fool, that's a personal thing, right? Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So it could result in getting in your car and shouting at that person, blocking the alley, or maybe just staring them down. I've done that multiple times, just stare them down, like, get out of my way. Or complaining to your spouse, right? My wife always says when I'm in traffic and I like say something to another driver, she's like, you're taking this out on me. They can't hear you. <laughs> of course, yeah. But these idiots just keep parking in the way, right? And that's my mentality. They're keeping me from going where I want to go. And it could mean yelling at your kids, right? They're, they're headed out of the, the, the house to church and the, they've disobeyed you the last 10 times you told them to do something. It could result maybe in a passive-aggressive approach to your kids and just like, just like shutting them out for the rest of the day and just saying, whatever. Or maybe it could mean getting mad and calling IT and just giving them a piece of your mind, right? Just giving IT a piece of your mind. You guys can't get anything right. Or it could mean bad-mouthing, just bad-mouthing them at the water cooler. Responses like this are an indicator of what's going on in our heart. Responses like this are an indicator of what's going on in our heart and why anger is mentioned here by Jesus. What's going on in our heart that leads to anger and insults against others? What's going on? It's a frustration, like Stott said. It's a frustration that people often stand in the way of going where we want to go, of getting where we want to get, whether it be in the moment or whether it be in life. And it exposes clearly our desire to be the center of the universe. And you say, well, I just don't get angry that easily. Again, Jesus is, 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 is concerned with the internal. He's, in, he's concerned with the internal that matches the external. So you might not get angry in the way that show. We think about anger, right? And we think about the, like the way that it comes out. We don't think about the way that it, that, or the place from which it comes. So, if we struggle to be in control, if we, if we struggle that our day isn't ordered the way that we like it to be, if we struggle when our conditions aren't met the way that we want them to be met, if we struggle when we don't get that raise that we think that we deserve at work, if we struggle when we can't seem to be content or when we can't afford that house or car that we think that we deserve, or when others just appear to be out to get you, when people, whether they're bottling up frustration or slandering them or blowing up on them or be, become the collateral damage to the pursuit of to get all of this straight, just to order our world the way that we want it. So not being a hothead doesn't mean anything. Jesus recognized that. Not being a hothead. Right, a hothead might be the one who says, you fool. But not being a hothead just simply doesn't mean anything because the condition, because your condition is the same as the one who has a tendency to blow up and get angry visibly. It just comes out dis- differently. Maybe you're irritable. Maybe you get passive-aggressive. Maybe you get self-righteous. Maybe you get bitter or argumentative. In any way that you cut it, right, your condition is this. You want to be king. Citizens of the kingdom, friends here who are in Christ, 
citizens of the kingdom, don't do this. We submit to the king and we submit to others, but we as people in sinful flesh want to rule our lives. But we need to recognize together that's a futile endeavor. That's a futile thing to engage in. There are far too many things outside of our control. We need to acknowledge this. What are we saying? Lord, I need you. Right? Because we're expressing dependence on who God is. And what we cannot do in and of ourselves. There are far too many things outside of our control to do this effectively. To be king. That's why it's futile. We pursue money to have things that we want. To have the illusion we're in control. We pursue relationships and networks to manipulate people to get where we want to go in life. We want more vacation time to spend it on our time pursuing our own interests. But again, citizens of the kingdom reject all of these notions. Citizens of the kingdom reject all of these notions. We are submitting to the king, submitting to others. Because citizens of the kingdom have an understanding that what's going on in our hearts is reflective of the way that our li- we order our lives and the way that we respond when things don't look the way we want them to. The people of God are set apart for an already established kingdom, not one that we're building ourselves. This is the consistent message of the Sermon on the Mount. We're not going to drop this. This is going to be a consistent message that we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount. The, the question then is, so what? So what? Right? Verses 23 through 26 then in this text give us the so what. What are we supposed to do with this information? How are we supposed to live? If the internal is decaying, And the external is all that you care about. You will grow angry in your heart towards individuals and and even, like Jesus says in verse 22, insult them. And you won't be whole. You won't be complete. You won't be perfect in the way that Jesus says we must be in verse 48. But verses 23 through 26 gives us the action that one takes if one is a citizen of the kingdom in which the internal matches the external. And there's one observation, just one observation that I want to give you here in these verses, and it's urgency. There's a level of urgency that's communicated here by Jesus. Just look at verse 23 and 24. Verses 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come to your gift. Wrongs committed against another are rarely a one-way street. We can, we can acknowledge that, right? Wrongs committed against another are rarely a one-way street. It's rarely 100%, 0% when we start to, when we start to have conflict or get angry with people. Both parties are sinful. It's closer usually to 50-50 than we think. We're usually pretty generous with ourselves. There are certain situations, I, just as a caveat, there are certain situations where we're 100% victims, but interpersonal, Jesus is talking about interpersonal relationships here. Both parties carry fault in when we're talking about the interpersonal relationships that go on. The examples I gave earlier, right, our our alley shouldn't be blocked. There's like a fire hazard. There's like a million different reasons why the the alley shouldn't be blocked. Partially, it's their fault. Your kids should have obeyed and put their shoes on and got in the car. The IT guide should, should have been more thorough, but that's not the point. 
Whether you're an alley blocker, a disobedient child, a, a, a lazy IT worker, or, a, or, a, or the one who gets angry about these things that are outside of your control, no matter where they are, reconciliation, Jesus says, is urgent. Reconciliation is urgent. No matter where you are, reconciliation is urgent. It doesn't matter where you are. doesn't matter what you've done. If someone has done something against you, or you have done something, someone, something against someone, Jesus says, go and be reconciled. Do it now. So reconciliation for us is urgent business. Is urgent business. Jesus gives them permission in the corporate worship setting to stand up, to go over, to be reconciled to the person, whether they be there or somewhere else, to be reconciled to that individual, pull them aside, pray together, be reconciled in the name of Jesus. He says, Don't allow this to continue. End it now. And why is it urgent? Jesus uses a legal example, but we'll get to the heart of it. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to court or going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the garden that you be put in prison. He says, truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. If you sinned against another, they have reason to hand you over to the authorities. If you sinned against another, they have reason to hand you over to the authorities and, and they will do it and you will go to jail and all the requirements, the time, the money will be met before you get out. Obviously, this is an extreme example, but the principle that lies behind this is this. If you fail to acknowledge the wrongs you've committed against others, the consequences will be devastating. Failing to acknowledge the wrongs that you've committed against another is on par with failing to acknowledge the wrongs you've committed against God. And that's why there's urgency here. There's urgency to be reconciled to God. We need this so desperately. There's nothing in this world that we need more than to be reconciled to God through the shed blood of Jesus. Paul, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, writes this, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. All right, to the church in Rome, Romans 5.10. For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Acknowledging the wrongs you've committed against someone, acknowledge even the anger and bitterness and an irritation that has maybe only presented itself in your heart and asking forgiveness from someone is admitting your need for a savior. It is saying who I am is broken by sin and I need something outside of me to make me whole again. New creatures, kingdom citizens, understand this. This is what Jesus is saying. New creatures, kingdom citizens, we are called to understand and act this way. We say, as citizens of the kingdom, we say, God, I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. And in the same breath, say, brother, I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. Sister, I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. The Bible is clear that these two things are similar. And not only similar, but tied together so closely that you cannot say one without saying the other. 
The same mindset that causes us to be angry or to insult our brothers and sisters causes us to fail to ask for forgiveness from and be reconciled to those same brothers and sisters. And this is a mindset, if we fall into that camp, this is a mindset that puts other, ourselves before others. It seeks our own interests before the interests of others because it's uncomfortable, it's messy, it's easier just to distance ourselves from it. But these, as we're going to see over the next few weeks, these are not kingdom ethics. Kingdom ethics are based on a deep understanding of Jesus' words here. And they're grounding in the gospel. The world rejects kingdom ethics because the greatest good is self. Citizens of the kingdoms embrace these ethics because our basis is the character of God himself. So conclusion then this morning. And friends, this is, this, is why, this is why the local church is so important for us. This is why engaging regularly together and living in close proximity with one another as those who identify as Buffalo City Church, this is why this much happened. Because this is a flashlight into our hearts. It's exposing our sinful tendencies and our tendency to discard people. It shows our tendency to want people to serve us and to grow angry when it doesn't. And that serves as this measuring stick, this metric for our understanding of the gospel and our willingness to seek reconciliation with our brothers and sisters. And it drives us to depend on God and his saving work for us in Christ Jesus. It drives us to depend on the the indwelling spirit of Christ. Again, like we talked about at link last week, the, 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 the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells inside of us. It causes us to live like new creation. It causes us to live like citizens of the kingdom. So this together, being together regularly as a body, exposes who we are and drives us to a place of dependence on God. It drives us to a place where we understand that this is not something that we can do in and of ourselves. And to live a life that's uncommitted and regularly absent from the lives of other believers is to claim that the self is highest good. It's to say that God des- God's designed way isn't the best way. And the local church will inevitably give us opportunities to seek reconciliation with one another. We're a small group. We're big enough that you're going to have beef with somebody. Two of the most common reasons people leave the local church, one, is power struggles. They want to get their way. Their frustration with others who are trying maybe to get their way. There's like leadership, Jesus says, in other places and throughout the New Testament. Leadership in the kingdom of heaven looks like servanthood. It looks like the willing to set aside one's own interests and needs and to serve the needs of others, to consider those needs and interests more highly than our own. Another reason people leave the local church is because lack of community. But I submit to you that that's a smokescreen. People might check that box on the survey they take, but it's a smokescreen. People think and expect community will happen with little to no effort on their part with no pain and no problems. 
But relationships, we know, relationships, Jesus is going to outline it in these six things. He's going to say relationships are hard work. And as soon as the situation requires reconciliation presents itself, people bail or distance themselves from community. Here's a truth. Messed up people make it for messy community. If you're not in need of reconciliation regularly with those you're in community, you're probably engaged in uncommitted surface-level relationships. So first, we need to find ourselves in the context of the local church regularly engaging one another. Secondly then, secondly, what I want you to see here too is incredibly important. Verse 22, what Jesus says, right? This is in the context of interpersonal relationship. Anger is not bad. Anger is not bad. Go back to that definition that we use. Think about it. Think about the definition that we used. Anger is active displeasure towards something that, or towards something that's important enough to care about. We should get angry about our sin. We should get angry about injustice in our world. We should get angry when people are used and abused by others. We should get angry at these things and things similar. And this is, that's why Jesus is clear when he's talking about anger within the context of relationships. So what I would say to you is don't be afraid to get angry. But just make sure that you heed what Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 4. This is verse 26, the first half of verse 26. He says, be angry and do not sin. It's possible. You wouldn't even say that if that wasn't a reality. If, you can't, if, you, if anger is a sin, then he couldn't say this. What he says is be angry and do not sin. It implies that you can be angry without sinning. But then what he immediately follows up this statement with in the second half of verse 26 and in 27, he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. This is a wedding text or something or like a marriage counseling text. But but you're like, don't let the sun go down on your anger. But what, what, what Paul is saying is if you allow this to fester, if you allow this to marinate, if you marinate in your anger, the more and more likely you will become to turn it and direct it towards people who are made in the image of God. So second, anger isn't bad. We need to recognize that. But finally, and this is the admonition and what I'll leave you with this morning. Reflect in your own life and what makes you angry. You say, well, again, I'm not an angry person. What's an irritant? What irritates you? What causes you to move to a passive-aggressive posture towards a person? What causes you to delve into self-righteousness? What causes you to become argumentative? Is it when your spouse does that thing? (laughs) Whatever that thing is. Is it when your coworker in the cubicle next to you chooses food real loudly? Is it when your neighbors party in their driveway till 2 a.m.? Or is it when you come to worship on Sunday morning and something doesn't match your expectations like, like the sermon? <laughs> or the music? Or the look that someone gave you from across the room? When we think about these things, remind ourselves, we must remind ourselves that this person, this individual, is created in the image of God. And although in the moment they might be operating outside of the small little world and kingdom that I want to have control over, 
And they're disrupting my comfort. And they're disrupting my convenience. In this moment, all that's doing is exposing my bent to view myself as the center of the universe. Walk it back. Seek reconciliation quickly. Recognize the immensity of forgiveness shown to you by God in Christ. This isn't a breathing technique or a plan for getting control over your anger. This is how the truth of the gospel comes to bear on our hearts. Let's pray.